Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. What if you were living during a pandemic? You knew there was a virulent disease that came in waves through communities around you, and you desperately wanted to protect yourself and your family. Now, you didn't have any surefire way of doing that, but you knew one thing, and it was a crucial thing to know. People in one line of work didn't seem to get the disease. There was a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Jesty, who was a simple farmer in uh, South uh, West England, who realized this and actually went to the to the extreme of intentionally infecting his wife and children. Now, wait a second. This is not what it sounds like. The farmer, Benjamin Jesty, infected his wife and children to save them because he had figured out something that would change civilization, according to Michael Kinch, who's the director of the Center for Research Innovation in Biotechnology at Washington University in St. Louis. You could tell someone that had smallpox because their faces would be full of scars. And milkmaids had very nice skin because they didn't get that disfiguring scarring. That's right. In the face of probably the worst recurring disease in human history, smallpox, one man began to believe in something we would come to know as a vaccine. And he believed in it because milkmaids seemed to somehow be immune to smallpox, says Kinch, who's also the author of the book Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. What milkmaids got instead was a less serious illness, cowpox, which, of course, they got from hanging around cows. And then when smallpox swept through town, killing many people, forever scarring other people, milkmaids had a strange bubble of protection around them. Which brings us back to that farmer, Benjamin Jesty, who had his family infected with cowpox. And that decision even now shapes the road we will try to travel to protect ourselves from coronavirus. So what it boils down to is that cowpox is a virus that is very closely related to smallpox. Cowpox, as the name would indicate, is a disease that's primarily in cows, but humans can sort of pick it up. And um, But cowpox, when you're infected and you develop immunity to it, those antibodies and T cells and other components of the, the immune system are sufficiently triggered that they can recognize the cousin of cowpox, which is smallpox. And that's actually the, the Latin term vaccine is, uh, the Latin root is for cow, and that's where we get the term vaccine from. Kinch says smallpox has probably killed more people than any war, than any natural disaster, and figuring out how to create that vaccine was one of the greatest achievements in human history. Which may not sound like hyperbole, given that the hopes of the entire world are now pinned on a vaccine for the novel coronavirus, a virus that's upended lives and economies and really the entire world. Over the next hour, we're going to take a look at how feasible coming up with a vaccine is, when you might get it, the problems that it might run into, and what the next few months and years could look like. But first, it's worth looking to history. And I don't mean ancient history. I mean, like, earlier this year. It's interesting because if you look to January of 2020, which seems like a million years ago, but yeah. was only a few months ago, the biggest problem we had in the infectious disease world was actually a resistance um, to vaccines. We were seeing increased incidence of measles and mumps and other vaccine-preventable diseases, and that was because of this anti-vaccine skepticism 
that has really been pushed by the extreme left and the extreme right, but the extremes in, in society. And that was the biggest problem that we had as far as vaccines. The issue now is obviously that everyone in the world is pinning their hopes to a vaccine for COVID-19. So we've really come 180 degrees in a very short period of time. And does the uh, do you worry about that that swing from uh, from honestly from like fear of what a vaccine can do to this hope of like it can do it can do everything it can solve all our problems? Absolutely, and part of that is we have to be able to manage both that hope and that fear. Managing the hope means that we have to be careful about placing our emotional eggs in a basket in the hopes that a vaccine is going to come around and everything's going to be better immediately. The reality is that a vaccine on average takes about a decade and a half to develop successfully. And we are, you know, talking about a year and a half and, and, right. and that right. is very optimistic and we're pushing, you know, we've pulled all the stops out and we're pushing everything as hard as we possibly can. But that's going to be a challenge that unfortunately we may not be able to make. But I think overall, we need to recognize that this is likely to unfold. There are probably two historical precedents. One historical precedent is HIV AIDS, where we thought, okay, we're going to address this disease, we'll get a vaccine, and in a few years, it'll be better. Reality is we are four decades later and no closer to a vaccine, it seems. We did, however, get some mediocre therapies that were launched in record-breaking time back in the, in the mid to late 1980s that led to subsequent therapies that were incrementally better and then suddenly, as we learned more about the virus, much better, to the point where HIV is a chronic manageable disease today. And that's probably the situation we're gonna be looking at with COVID-19 until we do have a vaccine. And I'm guessing that's gonna be potentially four or five plus years, if ever. Because again, keep in mind with HIV, we still don't have a vaccine. You know, you talked about the um, anti-vaccination movement. And I just, one question about that is, do you think that um, the the sort of dream now of getting a vaccine quickly, will that change that movement, which, you know, as you mentioned, like just a few months ago, six months ago, you would have said, you particularly would have said, yeah, this is the biggest problem we face in terms of a vaccine. Now everybody says, well, the biggest problem is clearly a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, will that will the anti-vaccination movement change? You know, I wrote a piece a few months ago, optimistically predicting that this might be the death knell if we do it right. If we develop a, a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19, that this would be the death knell of the anti-vax movement. Unfortunately, that's already starting to prove itself to be wrong. The number one selling book right now uh, is on vaccines, and sadly, it's not a, a pro-vaccine book. It is an anti-vaccine book. And likewise, the most watched video in the United States, even though it's been taken off of many sites, is misleading, false propaganda coming from the anti-vax movement. And I think that this is just reflecting, you know, the between hope and fear idea that this is reflecting that fear. We're angry, we're frustrated with this lifestyle that we have, and we want to find a scapegoat. And both this book and this um, video are based upon the assumption that 
essentially the pharmaceutical industry caused COVID-19 and mm. um, is a way of luring us into vaccines. And that is just wrong on so many different levels. One of the strange things that's happened underneath this hope for a vaccine and this sort of frenetic um, push towards one is that over the past few months, vaccinations for things we do have vaccines for have plunged. So New York City is an example, but I could give actually lots of other places as examples. But in New York City, vaccinations went down more than 60 percent this spring compared to last year. Um, what what do you make of that? I mean, this is just like kids getting like their regular old, you know, measles vaccine kind of thing. Yep. And this is basically an outcome of not the anti-vaccine movement, thankfully, but this is simply because parents have been afraid to or have had their, their pediatrics um, visits canceled. And so unfortunately, kids aren't able to see their doctors and get their regular vaccines. And there's a real danger, um, especially come fall, for a reemergence of diseases that have long since been beaten. And those are mm. influenza, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. You know, when you think of all the, the big vaccines, the DPT and the MMR, we're, we're potentially at risk for those. And the danger of both these missing vaccines for le legitimate reasons, because the doctor isn't available, or because of the anti-vax movement is something called herd immunity, which is something that's really misunderstood. But in very brief summary, if a certain percentage of the population, and it varies virus to virus, is not protected against the disease, either because they haven't been vaccinated or because they're elderly or they've had cancer chemotherapy or other treatments, then the entire population can become at risk. And we run the risk of falling into the level where herd immunity is no longer going to protect us. I see. So a young child who, let's say, has the measles could give the measles to some, somebody who is elderly who has um, had cancer in the past, let's say, and their immune system was compromised. Uh, and, like, and then things can start to spread that way. Exactly. It's the what's the likelihood you're going to bump into someone that, that is actively infective is basically the basis for herd immunity. And um, when we run into a decline in vaccination rates, we dramatically increase that susceptibility. And it's not just the unvaccinated that are going to be at risk. It's the elderly and many, many other groups. When you think about that as a risk, we, we spend so much time thinking about um, coronavirus as a risk. Do you think, well, compared to coronavirus, it's nothing? Or do you think, no, when you see like 60% declines in vaccinations in New York City and other places, it's a serious risk. I mean, just give me a sense of where you situate this. I think it is, you could see as many deaths from vaccine preventable diseases as you're seeing due to COVID-19. So oh my gosh. this is not a trivial effect. Keep in mind that measles, and measles is a disease that isn't always deadly, but it can be. Um, and it can also harm very dramatically your central nervous system, your, your brain, and, and, and your hear, hearing loss and things like that. Measles re requires that 95% of the population be protected, be actively vaccinated, and not be immunosuppressed. 
that 95% level is very high. And that means that when you start subtracting out the people that are immune suppressed, which are now added to that 5% risk, even mild missing of vaccines could have dramatic effects. And we really don't want to return back to the 1930s and 40s when we were you know, battling all of these infectious diseases and losing thousands or millions of, of children worldwide. Okay, let's break here for just a minute. We're going to come back and talk about what looks promising in terms of the vaccines that are now in trials. Plus, we'll have more about the lessons that history teaches us about what works when it comes to vaccines and what doesn't. And on our website, we've got the data for you on those major drops in vaccination rates over the last few months. They're all over the country from Massachusetts to Michigan. That's at innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. paradoxes of infectious diseases is that the very things that make humans great also make them exceedingly vulnerable. Our ability to build major cities, to trade, to travel. Take COVID-19, which President Trump tried to block by banning some people traveling from China to the U.S., restrictions that started back in February. But as New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has pointed out, the virus was way ahead of the policy. It had already gotten on a plane and flown to Europe. When you look at the number of flights that came from Europe to New York, the New York metropolitan area, New York and New Jersey, during January, February, up to the close down, 13,000 flights bringing 2.2 million people. A virus can, can move around the world very, very rapidly. And that's a, a real danger, not just of viruses, but bacteria and fungi and other things, other microorganisms that have the capacity to cause disease in people. Michael Kinch runs the Center for Research Innovation in Biotechnology at Washington University in St. Louis. And he's the author of the book, Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity, in which he writes that pandemics, most notably smallpox, likely contributed to the fate of the ancient Greeks, the fall of the Roman Empire, and the disappearance of 90% of Native people in North and South America before the year 1600. Certainly disease and plagues have rewritten history arguably more than probably anything else that you can name. Um, even you know contentious issues such as religion probably haven't come as close as microorganisms in changing history over time which raises the question of how this pandemic will reshape our lives and whether, as happened with smallpox, a vaccine will arrive on the scene as a game changer. Because no matter how sophisticated our society has gotten, our vulnerability to microorganisms remains unchanged. When I teach on the subject, I, I tell my students, I, I start off by asking the question, what stopped the First World War? And the answer to that is the Spanish influenza. And it's amazing when you look and realize that, again, the First World War was stopped by Spanish flu. And, how did it, um, how did it, how did the flu stop the war? 
it basically ended up depleting so many troops. And, and um, it, hmm. from our perspective, thankfully, it depleted the German army rather dramatically. And the troops were not available for a big spring offensive that the Germans had launched in 1918 because so many of them were, were ill. And the Allied powers, UK, United States, and France, had more troops left over that basically allowed us to to win that particular war. And this is a situation that when you look at the lifespans of, of humans, um, or the lifespans of Americans and Britons, for example, you will see that the lifespans have been getting progressively older and older as sanitation right. and medicines have improved. There's one exception. When you see this upward graph, and there's a sharp drop in 1917, 1918, which reflects the Spanish flu. And it was a very, very dramatic drop. And it just shows how susceptible our society is. And arguably, we're more susceptible today than we were 100 years ago. Uh, we may say, oh, we have far better technology. But in reality, we're far more susceptible. Why do you say that? Because you could also look at the – I was going to ask, like – are we in some ways healthier than we've ever been? Because, you know, over time, over millennia, um, do like people who are weaker get killed? And so, you know, people in the 1500s in Europe are healthier than people in the 1200s in Europe because like successive waves of, let's say, the bubonic plague have come through or does it just not work that way? Well, it, it, it somewhat works that way. The older the disease, the more likely that what you described is accurate. Okay. which is that we have more people who are healthy. The problem is that new diseases are being introduced all the time. And why I argue that we're more susceptible is actually attributable to a, to a guy in Arkansas, which is that Sam Walton created a business innovation known as just-in-time manufacturing and just-in-time supplies. And basically what it means is that when we order something at the store, the computer, as it's scanning it, automatically reorders the next one. And it was put to me in a lecture that I was at a number of years ago that the average supermarket has not actually changed all that much in size in the past 40 or 50 years. But whereas in the past, two-thirds of the supermarket used to be devoted to storage, now two-thirds of it is dedicated to the consumer and one-third for the storage. And the reason why they've been able to change that is because of this just-in-time idea. Well, when you disrupt that supply chain, which is what we've experienced with COVID-19, and I, I use as Exhibit A toilet paper, yeah, yeah, right. we end exactly. up uh, really becoming more susceptible to these kind of changes. And you know, we're, we've been hearing reports of this recently and uh, beef availability. And right. that's why, to a large, large degree, we are actually more susceptible as a society, perhaps not as individuals, but as a society to these sort of disruptions than we've been in the past. The idea being once upon a time, people would have had storage cellars with onions and, you know, apples and whatever and, and salted cod and stuff. And in warehouses that weren't and warehouses just, and just doesn't exist anymore. Yes. And we have warehouses and we have food processing facilities, but we rely upon a smaller and smaller number of these. And you see that every time that there's a food uh, contamination outbreak where uh, because there are only, let's say, a half dozen food processing facilities for a particular item, if one of them goes down, 
then there's a substantial impact um, across the, the world and across the country. So let's talk a little bit about how vaccines started changing the world. Um, and, and we talked a bit about the smallpox vaccine. Um, there is a sort of crazy cast of characters who brought about that vaccine, um, including this one woman that you mentioned named um, Lady Mary Montague. Uh, why is she so important? She was important because she was married to the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. So she was in modern day Istanbul. And okay. she the British, the British ambassador. Or... The British ambassador, I'm sorry, okay. yes. And she was herself an incredibly amazing individual, very, very smart. And um, what she ended up doing was that smallpox prior to her intervention, smallpox would rage through the United Kingdom and Europe and, and kill countless numbers of people. What she heard and, and witnessed was that the Ottomans, and it's a tradition that probably began in China and eventually evolved, that the Ottomans were using a technique known as nasal insufflation and also something by the name of variolation where you would, in both cases, intentionally infect someone, a, a healthy person with smallpox in a way that they would get the disease, but it wouldn't be a lethal form of the disease. So you were miserable, but you were protected then against the death-causing disease. Now, this okay. was not an easy technique. Something on the order of 10 to 20% of the people who went through this died. But it was much better than if smallpox came through your village and 80% would die. And so she brought this back when she and her husband returned back to the United Kingdom. She brought these techniques back, and she had done so because, unbeknownst to her husband, and this was a pretty gutsy move at the time, or I would argue any time, she had her son variolated, subjected to this treatment. And she had the embassy doctor watch the native person do this. And her son was protected. And so upon their return to the United Kingdom, they introduced this practice into the UK, and that helped dramatically decrease the risk of smallpox. Now, again, it was a dangerous technique, and it wasn't until Edward Jenner really helped to popularize the cowpox vaccine that we started our conversation with that we really started to get, we started to win in the war against smallpox. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Michael Kinch. He's an associate vice chancellor and director of the Center for Research, Innovation, and Biotechnology at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Um, I want to get to uh, an illness that 100 years ago caused just incredible fear amongst people, uh, polio. Can you speak a little bit to that fear? Like, how did it, how did it um, dictate people's actions, what they've let their kids do, all that stuff? So I got a firsthand account of it from my mother. And it's a generation above us, and I'm in my mid-50s. So it's a, that generation that lived that fear. And polio, very, this will sound very familiar to a contemporary audience, but polio, when it would enter a town, would capture all of the headlines. Parents would panic. Schools would close. If It's generally a summertime disease. If the schools were open, they would close. The swimming pools would close. The movie theaters mm. would close. 
and people would go into lockdown and you would especially keep your young children locked down. And the reason for this is that polio is actually a weird virus that prior to when we were very hygienic and, and hygiene really only got started in the late 19th century. Before that, we would tend to encounter polio when we were babies. And it's really not a terrible disease for babies. It turns out that it's a horrendous disease for young adults and children. So you would lock your kids down for months uh, until polio left town. An interesting historical issue is that polio was obviously made famous by FDR, who suffered this as an adult. And he was crippled by the disease. Um, He lost the, the use of his legs. And it was brought to the nation's attention through the March of Dimes and other, and the March of Dimes actually got its name because kids were encouraged to raise money a dime at a time to basically fight this disease. Hmm. We had a, a scientific hero by the name of Jonas Salk who said, hey, I've got an idea for developing a polio vaccine. And Salk had been involved in the influenza, the development of the influenza vaccine, the flu vaccine. And so it was fairly well known, but he became a rock star in the early 1950s. And the world was watching his activities in developing a polio vaccine in the same way that the world is watching the various organizations developing COVID-19 vaccines. And the story has both a good ending and a bad ending. The good ending, which we remember nowadays, is that we have an effective and very safe vaccine against polio. What we've forgotten is that the first vaccine that was developed by Jonas Salk actually was what's called an inactivated vaccine, a vaccine that is a live virus that's been chemically treated, and now it can no longer infect other people. That vaccine, when it was scaled up and mass manufactured, was not manufactured properly. And in parts of the West Coast, thousands of children were unexpectedly infected with this live virus. Some of them died and many of them had permanent paralysis. So they were meant to be vaccinated from polio, but they ended up injecting them with polio. Exactly. So they ended up intentionally infecting them unintentionally, if that makes sense. Yes. And it really taught us a lesson that we really need to learn today, which is that when we rush things, the outcomes aren't as we necessarily planned. And so we have to be very, very careful about not rushing this new vaccine um, to the point where we end up causing a mistake. Okay, so let me ask you about that. We've heard different timelines for for coming up with the, a vaccine for this novel coronavirus. The president is hoping we can have something before the year is out. Um, we've heard uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci say, you know, maybe 12 to 18 months. He's been saying that for a few months, so maybe it's a few uh, less now. I don't know. Um, do you think that's possible? It's theoretically possible. It's almost certainly impractical. It's possible because we could develop a vaccine and start immunizing people today, but we don't know that the vaccine will be safe or effective. And so that would be incredibly dangerous. And again, we need to look to history and the situation with polio for an example of that. The practicality question comes down to 
we need to be able to develop a vaccine that we know is safe at all times, effective both immediately and over a long term, and is what um, I'll use a term in the pharmaceutical industry that's called druggable, which means that it's a vaccine that can be manufactured to scale, to large scale, to be able to protect not 350 million Americans, but 7 billion humans. And it has to be transportable, meaning that there's something called a cold chain. If a particular medicine or vaccine requires deep freezing or other um, technology that makes it non-feasible, particularly if going to environments in the summertime, for example, that are hot and humid, then that's not necessarily going to be practical. So we've got to spend some time to make sure that we do this right. And for a vaccine, this is particularly important because a vaccine does something that is intended to be, and usually is, very long-term. So we are, with with an ideal vaccine, we are immunizing someone, we're generating immunity that will last decades, and hopefully the rest of that individual's life. If we develop a vaccine that is unsafe, you've now potentially introduced a problem that could last a lifetime. And so when we rush safety, and safety by definition is not just, I immunized you, how do you feel? It is, how do you feel a month, a year later? Are there any untowards effects that we didn't see? So if we rush a vaccine, we increase the likelihood or the potential that these unsafe outcomes could occur. Um. Aren't we in a bind then where you're in a situation where, like, if you have a vaccine and it's new, who knows if there's complications in five years from this vaccine? Well, the only way to really know, isn't it? Set me straight if I'm wrong. But like is to inject somebody and check up with them in five years. But if that's what you're doing, then how can you deal with coronavirus? Well, that's exactly right. And and that's the conundrum that we're in, because all of us and no one more than I wants this to be over with. There's actually another, returning back to history, there's another lesson to be learned, and that is uh, if we look at the whooping cough vaccine, the pertussis vaccine, the vaccine that I received, and again, I'm in my mid-50s, the vaccine that I received for whooping cough, it protected me for life. And it is it was a very powerful vaccine in kids. Uh, when you get it, it causes a fever. It's not a debilitating fever. There's no long-term implications, but it's uncomfortable for the kids. And there were some um, anti-vaccine movements that opposed the DPT vaccine for exactly the same reasons that there's currently a measles, mumps, and rubella and MMR opposition right now. It was not grounded in science. It was grounded in basically soothsayers. But what ended up happening was that we ended up diluting the pertussis component of the DPT vaccine so that my kids, unlike myself, when they get the vaccine, they only had two years of protection, whereas I had a lifetime of protection. Okay. So we diluted the effect, and what had happened was we did short-term studies and found that, yes, in the first six months to a year, the vaccine for pertussis still works, the diluted version, so it must be fine. And what they didn't do was that long-term follow-up. And the result is that we switched over this vaccine and we've still done it, even though we know we've been doing this for 20 years now. And we still have a weakened pertussis vaccine to this day. And we don't want to run, we, we need to learn from history and learn from that lesson. 
Let's take our last pause here. We're gonna come back with Michael Kinch. He's the head of the Center for Research Innovation in Biotechnology at Washington University in St. Louis. On our website, we've got his take on the single most promising development that he sees potentially happening over the next several months in terms of dealing with COVID-19. It's an exclusive to us. You can read it at innovationhub.org. We will also talk a little bit about that potential development after the break. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We've been talking about the promise of vaccines, how they can change history, and how, as happened with the polio vaccine, they can result in tragedy when they're rushed. But the polio vaccine, which finally made many parents confident about sending their kids to school, to public pools, it started being administered in the mid-1950s in a world that was a lot less technologically sophisticated than ours. So maybe we don't need to learn to live with this new coronavirus. Maybe we don't need to figure out how to conduct commerce and go to school in a world where you can get COVID-19. Because maybe a vaccine, as many hope, is just around the corner. Or maybe not, says Michael Kinch, the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Kinch also runs the Center for Research Innovation in Biotechnology at Washington University. And not only wouldn't he count on a vaccine showing up soon, he's not sure it would be smart to rush one. But that doesn't mean that when he looks at the dozens of vaccines being developed around the world, he doesn't see one with real promise. And it's one that hasn't gotten pretty much any attention or very, very little attention. So there has been much ballyhooing about this new technology known as mRNA vaccines and other other, uh, what are known as adenovirus-based vaccines that use recombinant DNA technology and, and are have lots of bells and whistles. But the one vaccine that has shown the most promising results in animals, and it's being tested in humans, and we haven't heard any human results yet, is an old-fashioned vaccine. And that is that, if you remember, we talked about how um, Salk had taken the polio virus and he inactivated it using chemicals. Right and that that was an effective vaccine. And that is used roughly, I think it's 60% of the time we have inactivated vaccines. There is an inactivated vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, which is the causative agent of of COVID-19. And it's being developed by a company called Sinovac. And the reason it stands out is that it protected rhesus monkeys from challenge. Now, what that means is that you took monkeys, you injected them, um, immunized them with the vaccine, and then you subsequently challenged them with the virus, and the monkeys were fine. They didn't develop the disease. They were protected from the virus being able to attack the monkey. No other vaccine, to my knowledge, has shown that good of activity. All of the other vaccines that have, where there's data available have shown some promise, but problems as well. And it's possible that the Sinovac vaccine will run into problems also. But to date, that's the one that that looks the most promising based on the data that is available uh, in public. Why do you think it hasn't gotten a lot of attention? I feel like I've heard a lot about Moderna's vaccine, about there's one at Oxford. Uh, There's some that feel very high profile to me. Why is the one that you think 
it has the most promise, like why has it not gotten the press? It's a Chinese company and it's being tested exclusively in China. It's a Chinese company and um, it has not been on our radar. Now there have been other Chinese vaccines as one developed by a company called CanSino, which is an adenovirus, which has a molecule from COVID-19 that causes it to be infectious. The Oxford vaccine is a little bit different because it's a chimpanzee adenovirus. And in theory, we shouldn't have encountered a chimpanzee adenovirus before, but it's not impossible to imagine that human adenovirus could trigger um, immunity that would cross over with chimpanzee. We just simply don't know that yet. How likely do you think it is that, you know, about a year from now, in about the spring of 2021, that um, people are being vaccinated for COVID-19? I would say the likelihood is low. I hope it. I hope I am wrong. No one wants me to be wrong more than I. I would say the likelihood is low, and, and I'll, I'll challenge you with a thought experiment. If we were to today have a vaccine available, we would need to manufacture this, and we would need to put it into vials, and each of those vials gets a rubber stopper, and we would need to distribute this around the country and the world, and we would need to develop sufficient immunity to trigger herd immunity. And this is if we had it today. This is if we had the vaccine in hand today. Okay. So my question to you is, do we have 7 billion vials ready to accept this vaccine? Do we have 7 billion rubber stoppers to put on the vaccine? Do we have 7 billion syringes? We've seen with the rollout of the diagnostic test that logistics is a problem. And so I think that we have to be addressing these logistics questions. So even if you had that manufactured vaccine, that's a problem. The other issue that I would raise or the other question I would raise is that under normal circumstances, we get the information for the influenza, the seasonal influenza vaccine. We are given the information, I should more accurately state, the manufacturers are given the information as to what vaccine to make in late February, and they immediately start putting everything they can to making vaccine. And when things all work really well, we will have vaccine to begin immunizing in late August or September. So it takes seven, eight, nine months minimum just to manufacture. And this is for a vaccine that we know how to make really, really well, because we've been doing it in one way or another since 1945. We're now talking about new technologies. We don't know what the storage conditions are gonna be or anything else. So to be able to deploy all of that is going to be highly problematic within to do that within a year. I was reading a report uh, recently which indicated that to establish herd immunity, it often takes three, four, or five years to do that because the patient populations, again, keeping in mind that You're not just vaccinating, but you need that vaccine to prevent the ability of the virus to jump from person to person. And that takes time. And so it it could be, this could be unfortunately something that is going to be a challenge. I wonder then if the flu vaccine for this coming year is going to be a bit of a mess because can you distribute it with people? We, we were talking before about people being scared to come out of their homes and go get vaccines. I mean, it, 
I just wonder if things are going to be more of a mess because we have this huge disruption, whether it's in manufacturing or whether it's in distribution or, or whatever it is with the flu vaccine. My guess would be, and I haven't heard anything to indicate that there have been any disruptions to, to influenza vaccine. The one thing I would encourage everyone to do is to get your flu shot this year. And the reason for that is twofold. One is that the hospitals and your doctor are not going to be meeting this fall when we have a recurrence of, of COVID-19. They don't want to have to be dealing with flu. That's sort of practical point number one. Practical point number two is we haven't yet experienced a situation where influenza and COVID-19 occur in the same individual, meaning in mass. Perhaps in, in individual to individual, we may have seen that. But it's it, one thing to learn from Spanish flu and other uh, just from history is that when you are trying to fight two respiratory infections at the same time, your likelihood of winning is much, much lower, which translates sadly into far more people likely to be killed if you have flu and COVID-19 at the same time. So people should get their flu shot this year. I haven't heard of any disruption. I would think that news would probably be out by around now. Um, and so I would encourage everyone for sure to do so. That actually brings up a very important question, which is when, you know, you get a flu shot, it's very different from getting a shot to protect you from polio because you're not going to get polio. But just because you get a flu shot does not mean you won't get the flu. Is it possible that even when a vaccine is developed uh, for COVID-19, that in fact, It'll be okay, but it won't mean you won't get it. Maybe it'll, you'll get it less strongly. Maybe you will get it like at a lower rate, like you're less likely to get. Is that possible? Absolutely. But let's distinguish two different things. One is that a vaccine is meant to basically give you a head start, give your immune system a head start to be prepared to fight this thing. It might not necessarily prevent you from getting any symptoms but it might prevent you from getting the worst symptoms and of course the worst symptom of all being death. So a vaccine, even if it just alleviates disease and doesn't fully prevent it would still have value. Ideally, we wanna prevent it so that no one's getting sick at all. But one thing to separate out though, the question from flu is that influenza has this really bad habit of doing something called shifting and drifting, which can mean that, if you remember I said that the flu vaccine what will be manufactured is determined by the World Health Organization in late February. And we, we use that in the summertime. Well, roughly one time out of three, the shifting and drifting causes the vaccine to not be effective. Based on what we've seen with the coronaviruses and our experiences with coronaviruses, this is unlikely to be the case here. If we get a vaccine that works, it should be what we call durable. It should remain effective for other strains. SARS-CoV-2 is not like HIV, which mutates really well, or like flu that undergoes the shifting and drifting. So that's one really good bit of news, is that once a vaccine is proven to be safe and effective, it should be safe and effective for quite a while. So let me back way up. If, if the sort of takeaway from this conversation is, well, vaccines can take a really long time to develop. It's not necessarily safe to rush a vaccine because it can introduce all sorts of X factors into the equation that you just, you might be really sorry that you did introduce. Um, and yet we probably couldn't or wouldn't stay in lockdown forever. I mean, we'd 
probably lead to a lot of hunger and lots of other things that could have its own set of problems. If you're if we're talking about, oh, it's going to be years potentially before we get a good vaccine. How would you say we should live with coronavirus? Because that's in some ways what I feel like we're talking about. Well, there are two things. One is that we're going to have to adapt to a new normal, but we're not going to necessarily take this laying down. And what I mean by that is there will still be work done to develop therapeutics, to be able to be able to treat individuals who have been infected. And actually something else that hasn't gotten nearly so much press that I'm very optimistic about is what's known as convalescent plasma. And the idea here is that you take plasma from patients that have previously been infected and have made effective antibodies, the thing that we're trying to achieve with a vaccine, and you use those antibodies to confer what's called passive immunity. You give the antibodies from another individual to a susceptible individual, and those antibodies will function in the person that's been given them to prevent the disease. It's comparable in, in some ways, it's analogous to why breast milk with the antibodies that come in breast milk is effective for children, uh, for newborns. And so we can give this potential convalescent plasma to many different, uh, I mean, the strange good news is that the supply is growing every day because more, as more and more people recover from the disease, the supply will increase. And is that something, I mean, since you have to get it from a person, like an actual living person, it's not something you can uh, pump out of an assembly line. Um, do you feel like, yes, large scale, this is something that we can give to, I don't know if it's the sickest patients, since most people are okay, most people who get coronavirus actually are okay and do recover on their own. Um, is this a large scale solution that you think? This will be potentially a last case solution, meaning the sickest patients, okay. but at least it gives us a chance, a fighting chance. And do you think it could be usable very soon, like in the next few months? It's, a, it's being tested and it's actually being evaluated right now. And the technologies, both to develop the convalescent plasma and actually make sure that the blood supply is safe, because keep in mind, these individuals could have other viruses, they could have um, the, the COVID-19 itself, those technologies have also dramatically improved and are being implemented. So it's something that's actually, it's the proverbial bird in hand. Finally, I just wonder, as you hear all the news coverage all the time, and this has been something, this idea of vaccines and uh, infectious diseases is something you've focused so much of your life on. Um, is there anything that we sort of that we didn't get to, but that you is important to you and that strikes you when you uh, when you hear what's going on around you? I think the biggest thing is, and kind of going back to the title of the book, we've got to maintain the hope. The answers to this will come. The solutions will soon be in place. Soon will never be fast enough. But I, there is certainly hope. We can get through this. We will get through this. And I think that the what I would caution everyone is that we have become so accustomed to a successful drug and vaccine system that we want an immediate solution. And that unfortunately is not gonna come, but it will over the longer term for sure come. I think that's the most important thing. There's, there's, there are many reasons to be optimistic, 
but we need the optimism to be rational. And there's been a bit of a rational exuberance as evidenced by market changes and everything else over the latest tidbit of news. But when you look mm. more closely, the news isn't so good. So we just need to keep that optimism, keep that hope. It will eventually be rewarded. Michael Kinch is Associate Vice Chancellor and Director of the Center for Research Innovation in Biotechnology at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Michael, this was great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And on our website, we've got an exclusive opinion piece from Michael about the hope behind plasma therapy, which has already been used on thousands of COVID-19 patients, and why it might be the tool that we need to get through the next several years. That's at innovationhub.org. And there we will also have a lot more on the evolution of vaccines, which we've talked about over the course of the last hour. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>